0: chapter four of the real oscar wilde by robert sherard this librivox recording is in the public domain oscar wilde incited people in paris to talk about him unfavourably by certain mannerisms and eccentricities of dress which irritated the literary men for instance he used to wear gorgeous fur-lined overcoats which gentlemen do not wear in paris and then there was that custom of his of having his hair curled this is common enough amongst the french proletariat indeed no french workman would think of going to his wedding without first paying a visit to a coiffeur friseur, hairdresser but it is not usual dans le monde he had acquired this custom after his return from america and a visit to the louvre museum where the coiffure of the emperor nero in a bust had attracted his attention at a time when having discarded the long hair of the aesthetic period he was considering in what style to have his really beautiful chevalier arranged he wrote me from london society must be amazed and my neronian coiffure has amazed it nobody recognizes me and everybody tells me i look young that is delightful of course the papers commented on this change in the appearance and in one of its numbers for eighteen eighty three punch had the following paragraphs on the matter a wild guess a society sixpenny states that it was while mr oscar wilde stood before the bust of nero in the louvre that he decided to crisp his flowing locks after the fashion of the imperial fiddler the motive for this particular change is not far to seek perhaps oscar probably found his influence in the boudoirs waning and determined to get himself up a la the roman emperor in order that he might once again be the centre of a Nero-worshipping circle of damsels. Another reference is made in punch under the heading Wild Waggery. Mr. Oscar Wilde, having come back from Paris with a highly frizzled chevalier, the world is moved as follows. Our Oscar is with us again, but oh, he is changed who was once so fair has the iron gone into his soul oh no it has only gone over his hair a recollection of the influence the eminent aesthete used apparently to exercise over the sayings and the doings of the curl society emboldens us to humbly cap our contemporary's epigram to this extent the curl was once as you're aware to oscar's tune reduced to twirl but he who gave the curl an air now gives instead his hair a curl it will be seen from these somewhat laboured pleasantries that poor wilde's little freak of fashion evoked in london nothing graver than amusement yet ten years later this same fashion of his was to excite such malevolent comment as to induce a sincere friend and admirer of his To refuse him his further acquaintance and still later at the time of his trial to be used against him by the treasury council as directly suggestive of immoral tendencies i do not know if pierre louis translation of the letter which has since been described as an idiot letter by the person to whom it was addressed has been reprinted anywhere so as a literary curiosity it is appended sonnet a letter written in prose poetry by mr oscar wilde to a friend and translated into rhymed poetry by a poet of no importance iassante au mon coeur jeune dieu doux et blanc tes sont la lumière de la mer ta bouche les sons rouges du soir au mon soleil se couche je t'aime enfant chers aux bras d'Apollon. « Tu chantais, et ma lyra et moi douce, les longs des rameaux suspendus que la brise effarouche. À frémir, que te voir à chanter, quand je touche te cheval couronné d'acons et de houblon. Mais tu pars, tu me fuis pour la porte d'Hercule. Va rafraîchés tes mains dans le clair crépuscule des choses ou des sons l'âme antique. »« Et reviens. »« Iacente, adorée. »« Iacente, Iacente, car je veux voir toujours dans les bois s'irriant ton beau corps étendu sur la rose et l'absente. » considerable importance was attached by the prosecution at all the trials to this letter which oscar wilde described as a beautiful letter a poem something like one of shakespeare's sonnets and on which the person who received it has recently expressed a very caustic opinion mr justice will's view of it and of other letters that were read at the trial was he preferred not to express any opinion as to whether the prosecution was justified in the use it endeavoured to make of them he added that he himself might be dull but could not see the extreme beauty of the language to return to wilde's account of how he regained possession of this letter he related that after the departure of Allen with his half-sovereign a man giving the name of clyburn came to his house he used dramatically to describe the panther-like gliding of the blackmailer's entrance i went out to him and said i cannot bother any more about this matter he produced the letter out of his pocket saying alan has asked me to give it back to you i did not take it immediately but asked why does alan give me back this letter he said well he says that you were kind to him and that there is no use in trying to rent you blackmail you as you only laugh at us i took the letter and said i will accept it back and you can thank Allen from me for all the anxiety he has shown about it i looked at the letter and saw that it was extremely soiled i said to him i think it is quite unpardonable that better care was not taken of this original manuscript of mine he said he was very sorry but it had been in so many hands i gave him half a sovereign for his trouble and then said i am afraid that you are leading a wonderfully wicked life he said there is good and bad in every one of us i told him he was a born philosopher and he then left in cross-examination wilde said that the reason why he gave the blackmailers ten shillings each was to show his contempt for them it is quite obvious from his conduct throughout with regard to this letter that he considered it an entirely innocent composition sir william wilde lived long enough to see both his sons william and oscar give promise of brilliant careers he died on nineteenth april eighteen seventy six universally lamented his sons had every reason and right to be proud of their father who indeed did bequeath to them a name made noble i can only remember one occasion on which i met lady wilde oscar's mother for though she was living at willie wilde's house in oakley street during all those dreadful days in may eighteen ninety five when i was a constant visitor to my friend who had been released on bail she was confined to her room indeed to her bed i had been introduced to her at her house in park street grosvenor square where she lived with her son william in eighteen eighty three and it was oscar who took me there i recall with what pride he said to me robert my mother she was unfashionably dressed in a mid-victorian style of costume made of black silk and she wore several large pieces of cameo jewellery her hair was dark and in ringlets and her broad face, with its massive features, was illuminated by her magnificent eyes. I forget what she said to me at the moment of my presentation, but some minutes later, as I was standing talking to Dr. Anna Kingsford, I saw her crossing the drawing-room towards me, walking in a stately and Phaedra-like fashion. She was holding out a posy of Narcissi, and kept saying, "'Flowers for the poet! Flowers for the poet!' it appears that it was for me that they were intended oscar having told her that i was bringing out a volume of verse the said volume of verse by the way was deservedly slated by willie wilde in vanity fair he said inter alia that i had done right to call it whispers for that it would make no noise in the world it has been my unfortunate experience however to see such survival in that wretched book as is indicated by its frequent appearance in catalogues of second-hand books and for no other reason than it was affectionately and admiringly dedicated to oscar wilde poet and friend oscar himself made a little jest of it in his reviewing days when noticing a book of mine in one of his paragraphs in the pall mall gazette he mentioned that the author had come through early poems a three-volume novel, and other complaints common to his time of life. Perhaps he thought I deserved a little punishment for associating his name with such very poor verse. I could not, however, foresee, when I wrote that dedication, that thirty years later, simply on account of it, people would be asking for the book. Oscar Wilde always told me that he disliked reviewing, and especially the work of that nature which he did for the ladies' world it was most tedious he said nor did he care to condemn i never write reviews now of contemporary literature he writes in a letter to a lady who had offered to send him a copy of one of her books or indeed reviews of any kind for a time reviewing interested me a little but i tired of it very soon and i don't think i shall ever return to it a very interesting book on oscar wilde and his mother by anna countess de Bremont, should be read by anybody who wishes to form an opinion on lady wilde madame de bremont visited her first at the park street house about three years after my visit there and great changes must have taken place in the house as well as in its mistress if one is to judge from the following first impressions which madame de bremont recorded what matters the old-fashioned purple brocade gown the towering head-dress of velvet the long gold earrings or the yellow lace fichu crossed on her breast and fastened with innumerable enormous brooches the huge bracelets of turquoise and gold the rings on every finger her faded splendour was more striking than the most fashionable attire for she wore that ancient finery with a grace and dignity that robbed it of its grotesqueness i certainly saw nothing grotesque in lady wilde's attire she was not it is true fashionably dressed but she certainly presented no such appearance as described by madame de bremont doubtless during the three years between eighteen eighty three and eighteen eighty six lady wilde's eccentricities in the manner of dress had developed while from madame de bremont's description of her home so different from the impression of comfort and elegance which it produced on me it would appear that during this period also her financial position had grown very much worse as a matter of fact those were very bad years for the wilds oscar who was now married had alone an aptness in belles lettres as a breadwinner willie had only the precarious resources of the freelance journalist while lady wilde's income from her estate in ireland had shared the fate of all incomes derived from such sources at that period of irish agricultural depression madame de bremont continues she posed in that dim dingy room like the grand dame that she was by right of intellect nay genius and noble irish blood she appeared absolutely unconscious of the incongruities around her the dowdy maid the poorly furnished room the badly served tea the dust and dinginess the flickering candles all were evidently matters of small importance in the light of her majestic presence and brilliant conversation she gave me from the first the impression that it was she who made the room and not the room that made her or in other words a grande dame is ever a grande dame whether she dwells in a palace or a hovel not that the old house in park street was a hovel by any means at that time lady wilde who could no longer afford to live in mayfair was moving to the house in oakley street chelsea where about ten years later she died during her son's imprisonment it was a poor house of the kind usually let out in furnished apartments with a basement an area a plot of waste at the back and a front and back room communicating by means of folding-doors on each floor here lady wilde resumed her receptions with grand eclat says madame de bremont who describes her first visit there with some picturesqueness i found myself finally at the door of the reception-room which seemed to my eyes filled with the sunlight of the outer air shrouded in darkness pierced here and there by a dimly gleaming red light as my eyes gradually became accustomed to the twilight of the rooms before me i could discern faces that stood out with rembrandtesque distinctness it gave me a strange feeling of recovery from an attack of blindness to see those shadowy faces while the uproar from those voices of the unseen produced on me quite an uncanny sensation this with the close atmosphere of the rooms was making me decidedly nervous when the sound of lady wilde's voice broke the unpleasant spell in the semi-darkness she loomed up a majestic figure her headdress with its long white streamers and glittering jewels giving her quite a queenly air here is a description of oscar wilde as he showed himself at one of his mother's oakley street receptions as he bowed over his mother's hand i noted the up-to-date elegance of his attire the short crisp locks of hair with just a suspicion of the old-time wave brushed back from the high brow the indefinable air of the dandy that hung around him he was no longer the aesthetic posier but a resplendent dandy from the pale pink carnation in the lapel of his frock-coat to the exquisite tint of the gloves and the cut of the low shoes of the latest mode oscar wilde always wore buttonhole flowers it will be remembered that he introduced from Paris that invention of some decadent horticulturalist, with a penchant for chemical experiments, the green carnation. Footnote: The green carnation was evolved by fumigating a white pink over burning sulphur. End footnote. Which became the vogue amongst the jeunes in London and supplied mr robert hitchens with a taking title for the roman Aclef, clef which made his reputation in his heyday of brief financial prosperity oscar wilde had a standing arrangement with a florist in the burlington arcade to supply him with two boutonnières daily one at half guinea for himself and one at half a crown for the driver of his hansom cab for that day at his mother's receptions oscar wilde spoke little but seemed to efface himself that his mother might display her brilliant wit and hold every one by the charm of her conversation but his voice in the few words of greeting he exchanged with friends had a triumphant note that was absent when i last heard him speak his smile was as gracious but more kindly the covert sneer in it had vanished now i protest i never once in all my life saw anything even vaguely resembling a sneer on my friend's lips this en passant i do not believe he could have sneered even if he had tried ever so hard with regard to his dress as described above it appears that in eighteen eighty six he had already begun to abandon all eccentricities of costume and was endeavouring to dress a la mode after his return from america he had given up the aesthetic masquerade in which he had first attracted attention to himself here is a description of him as he appeared in eighteen eighty two in new york in the costume referred to his splendid youth and manly bearing lent a certain charm to the strange costume in which he masqueraded he shone to far greater and better advantage amid these surroundings than he did on the lecture platform there was a dignity and graciousness in his manner that blinded one to his eccentric appearance the long locks of rich brown hair that waved across his forehead and undulated to his shoulders gave his fine head an almost feminine beauty it might have been the head of a splendid girl were it not for the muscular throat fully displayed by the rolling collar and fantastic green silk necktie knotted after the fashion of the etudion of the parisian studios the broad somewhat heavy shoulders encased in the well-fitting velvet coat with its broad lapels the left of which bore the ubiquitous emblem a huge and magnificent specimen of the sunflower with the velvet coat he wore knee-breeches black silk hose and buckled shoes when i first met him in paris he was dressing apart from his use of fur coats and rather showy jewellery like an ordinary french gentleman silk hat redingote and so on at home when he was at work he donned a white woolen dressing-gown which somewhat resembled a monk's robe a costume de travail the idea of which he had borrowed from that gigantic worker honore de balzac the author of the comedy humane Balzac used to explain his use of this dress by saying that it suggested to him the seclusion of a monastic cell where he could fancy himself immured in the person of some medieval frere laboriously engaged year in year out the live-long day and most of the night pen in hand at work over some gorgeous and illuminated manuscript and it will be remembered that one of balzac's tenets was le travail constant est la loi de l'art comme celle de la vie, car là c'est la création idéalisée. To remind himself further of the giant worker Balzac, wilde had had a walking-stick made after the model of one which the French novelist had created and which had been so much talked about in the Paris of his day that Delphine Gay had written a book entitled Monsieur de Balzac's Walking Stick. It was an ivory stick with a blue pommel, turquoises or lapis lazuli. He was not, however, long content to remain in the current fashion. He desired to be distinctive and noticeable, and during the first weeks of our acquaintance he was debating what style of dress to adopt he hesitated between the mode of eighteen forty eight paris and that made fashionable by beau Brummel. in the meanwhile he revived the fashion of shirt-cuffs which turned back over the cuffs of the coat a revival for which the laundress of the Hotel voltaire was heard to bless him in the end and on his return to london in eighteen eighty three as was duly announced in the world by his friend edmund yates he adopted the costume of Beau Brummel. A contemporary number of Punch has an illustrated skit on this departure, as well as an impromptu running Oscar's Latest Fashion. Oscar as Brummel dresses now, to show his Beau Ideal is a real beau. After he had made his great successes on the stage and was consequently prosperous, he definitely abandoned all eccentricities of costume he could now afford a fashionable tailor he could now afford to dispense with the publicity of notoriety lord alfred douglas who knew him at this period and elaborately describes his various get-ups gives us the picture of a modish man about town a full description of his wardrobe during his lifetime would have to include a hideous costume of brown spangled with a black device which he had to wear during a period which will be dealt with lower down towards the end of his life he abandoned all foppery and contented himself with the cheap clothes of the middle-class tailors amongst pathetic documents left behind him none i think was more moving to one who had watched his career in which dress had played so great a part than an unpaid bill from a cheap tailor for du at three pounds each, two business suits, for one whose only business, alas, was to suffer. End of chapter 4